Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Even with Serial taking a week off, our Facebook and Twitter feeds have been filled with questions and comments about Bo Bergdahl and his version of events in his first year in captivity. But even more so, listeners have been asking, or dare I say, demanding that we talk about Netflix's 10-part documentary, Making a Murderer. So that's what we're going to do in this special bonus episode. If you don't want to be spoiled, if you don't want to hear us talking about the case, you may want to listen to this podcast episode after you've finished that series, which I dare say is a must-watch series. We will be back next week with our regular discussion of Serial Season 2. Thanks to those of you who've supported this podcast as we've launched Season 2. Your iTunes reviews have helped keep us on the charts. Keep them coming. I believe we are the best-reviewed podcast about Serial out there, thanks to you. We still don't have a podcast sponsor, so we do rely on your small donations at crimewriterson.com to pay our production costs, including renting this very studio. You can do that by hitting the PayPal button right there at crimewriterson.com. We've also got a link to Amazon on our website that you can bookmark and use for all of your Amazon shopping. Maybe spend that gift card you got for Christmas. A tiny percent of your purchases go to support this show. It doesn't cost you anything extra at all. Speaking of that Amazon link, back by popular demand, here is Toby Ball reading some of the items that our listeners have purchased using the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. Dick Van Patten's Natural Balance Mini Jumpin' Sticks Duck Formula with Glucosamine and Chondrotin Semi-Moist Dog Treat. Von House 600-Watt 2-in-1 Corded Upright Stick and Handheld Vacuum Cleaner with HEPA and Sponge Filtration Free Crevice Tool. Art Naturals Top 8 Essential Oils. 100% pure of the highest quality essential oils. Peppermint, tea tree, rosemary, orange, lemongrass, lavender, eucalyptus. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers on Serial, Season 2, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally, yes, television shows. Today, with Serial taking a holiday break, we're going to spend this episode talking about what you have been asking for, the blockbuster 10-part Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer. All right, I think we need to cue the mournful cello music about here.
And joining me right now is my true crime co-author, real-life husband, on our anniversary, coincidentally, Kevin Flynn. Happy New Year, Kevin. Happy New Year, Rebecca. This so beats walking the dogs. <laughs> also joining us in the studio today is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and coolest of all, licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. I'm so glad I have you guys to thank for uh, getting my Wi-Fi upgraded. <laughs> <laughs> also joining us is noir novelist and contrarian to the stars, Toby Ball. Happy New Year to you, Toby. Happy anniversary. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, what I want to do to kick off our discussion of making a murderer today is play a voice memo that we received from a listener, a listener named Richard, who sent this along. Let's just go ahead and listen to that, and then we will talk about making a murderer right after we hear this. I have been obsessed with making a murder on Netflix, watched every episode, and I'm just appalled at the justice system. I'm appalled at the personal feelings of people outweighing evidence. It's insane, it's crazy, it makes me so upset. One of the quotes from the show is, why would someone who is innocent and did not commit a crime confess to committing a crime? Well, we know that this happens all the time. And it's just crazy that people are so naive to that, that coerced testimony, coerced, Confessions happen all the time. Oh, anyway, love the show, loved making a murder, but hated it too. Love, hate, love to hate it, hate to love it. All right, so that pretty much, I think, sums up what a lot of the reaction to Making a Murderer has been. This was actually a 10-part documentary. Last summer, we talked about another long documentary. You might remember The Staircase. This one is quite different in some ways, the same in other ways. Uh, Of course, this is the story about Stephen Avery, who was falsely convicted of a rape and then convicted again for this murder along with his nephew. So, Toby, I'm going to start with you. I believe you finished this series, what, today, this morning? So you're fresh off of it? What did you think about just the presentation of the documentary? In 10 parts, this true crime story, I'd love just your initial reactions to the format and the presentation of this series. Oh, well, I thought the format was good. You know, they did, like after each episode, basically left you at a cliffhanger so that you kind of felt compelled to watch the first five minutes of the next episode, if nothing else. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was. I thought it was very well done. I've got some some caveats about the the content, but as far as production and 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 just the way the story was told, I thought it was very effective. What did you think, Laura, watching this documentary? Um, I really liked it. You know, the intro sort of reminded me of that show, the theme song for Carnival that used to be on HBO. It's kind of this. I thought the music was a good choice. It took me a little bit of time to get used to sort of the pace of it without a narrator helping you along. That that did take a little bit of an adjustment, but once I got used to it, it was fine. And Kevin, what did you think of the series, just as a, as a piece of media, the well, format? Well, first of all, I'm just going to say, thank God there was no serial episode this week, because people on the internet were screaming, you have to talk about <laughs> making a murderer. I mean, they're coming at us with pitchforks if we didn't, if this weren't the topic this week. Um, I liked the, uh, the documentary a lot. I was really into it, you know, midway through, and I did think of, like, The Staircase... And serial season one, I think it's so much more dramatic to feel like you have somebody who is innocent of a crime being wrongly convicted versus putting the bad guy in jail. Like Toby, I do have some caveats about the documentary itself and Stephen Avery's culpability. I think like everybody, the whole thing with Brendan 
uh, Dassey, I have, you know, I'm much more concerned about that. But excellent documentary. I think people are just going to start subscribing to Netflix for one month so they can see this. Two things about the style I want to comment on. One is a lot of people have been commenting that the music is reminiscent of the music from Game of Thrones also, which it is. And I was actually playing them side by side this morning. It's in the same key as the Game of Thrones theme. It uses a cello, cello as his lead instrument like Game of Thrones. And the end of it is almost identical to the final chord of Game of Thrones. You can actually play this theme at the same time of the Game of Thrones theme and kind of mash them up a little bit because the chord progression is the same. So there's that. The other thing that I really thought was interesting stylistically about this documentary, something that you kept pointing out, Kevin, was the way they incorporated present-day drone B-roll over all of this. Like, it was, uh, you know, so you would see these courtroom scenes from, like, the early 2000s, and then, you know, and then it would be like, okay, we need a shot of the drone flying over the city in winter. We need a drone flying over the city in the summer. We need a drone flying over this. And it was just really clever, the way that they, they stitched that footage well, together. They have, like, 10 years uh, worth of, of audio. They, got a, a, they need a lot of B-roll because there's so much, like, audio from telephones and, and things like this that visually you need something something for that and I think actually worked the best way it worked the best I think is flying over the the auto yard the Avery property right when you see how big that is that looks like a parking lot from Disney World and when you talk about oh that we found the RAV4 in 10 minutes in the middle of this it's it looks like, like a wow. decayed post-apocalyptic Disney World parking yeah lot when it also way. said a lot about um, you know the uh, the financial status of this family that all seem to live in in trailers on the same piece of land Right. At the same time, though, you know, I, I think that there are some questions there, too. And let, let's start there. Let's start with the Avery family, because one of the things that we hear at the beginning of the series, and Toby, I'll direct this to you first, is, is we hear a little bit about that there's something about that family, that people sort of have it out for them. And we hear like a little bit about, you know, the feud between Avery and his, was it his cousin, cousin. who accused him of, you know, being naked on the lawn and you know, in his underwear, and he doesn't even own underwear, like that whole weird thing. But there was this little bit of exposition at the beginning about how this were sort of like a community of educated farm people, and then there were the Averys, and they're, they're sort of being cast that way. Toby, was it clear to you why this family, I don't know, was sort of be, being portrayed as like a target for people in the community? You know, in some ways, I, I, I kind of understood as far as having been a high school teacher for, for a year, and sometimes, you know, in these small towns, like everybody knows everybody else, and you know, families get reputations and things like that. And the Averys, you know, are at least portrayed this documentary as being both kind of poor and also seemingly somewhat removed from the rest of the community. Like they really do. They sort of live in this compound. It's, it's not hard to see them as sort of outsiders within their own sort of small uh, town. You, you know, I, I don't think that they were very clear on the dynamics within the family, with all the extended family, right. except for in episode one, it's trying to explain the motivation behind the rape accusation. I think they did a really good job, and visually they had sort of like the you know the tree with here's this photo, and this person is you know this cousin is married to this sheriff, and that was pretty good. And I think just episode one as a standalone could have been a very great documentary. But I don't think other than the, the motivation about. You know, this sheriff could be is in the lawsuit, and the, the you know the insurance for the county is only going to pay so much. I don't think they really played out a other than the financial thing what the motivations of law enforcement was. And I thought we kind of lost because it, it seems like the evidence points to somebody who lives on that property 
is the killer, and we don't really know a lot about the other people, you know, beyond episode one. Right. Well, we will get into that in just a couple of minutes. Laura, I'm curious about um, the rape case, and I think that what was very interesting was that we heard some things about Stephen Avery. A lot of them were things he said, you know, in his interviews that wouldn't necessarily paint him as a sympathetic character. You know, we heard that he had this incident with a cat, which, you look around a little bit, it seems like he poured oil on a cat and set a cat on fire at one point, and he went to prison for it. You know, we heard about, you know, some sort of tumultuous stuff within his family. and But then you sort of see how the rape case plays out. You see all of these really kind of powerful people on his side when he's exonerated, like state legislators and, and, and so forth. Do you think it was effective, that turnaround, making him a sympathetic character that you could, you know, really get on board with supporting? Um, I didn't find myself as sympathetic toward him as perhaps some other people. You know, that cat case really bothered me. I'm a cat person, but when you hear people torturing animals in such a really cruel way, it really sort of lead you to think about what else is going on with this person, that somebody that would do something like that would probably do something worse. You know, with regard to the family and, you know, they're sort of standing in the community, I feel like I really didn't get a good sense of, aside from the fact that, you know, the obvious, what you could draw from this, they're living in this sort of junkyard on the outskirts of town. I feel like maybe there was some more about the police past dealings with them. Were they troublemakers? Um, You know, are these the kids that are like hot rotting up and down the roads and constantly just like a thorn in the side of the local police? That would have helped me understand a little bit more why there was such a slant against this family. The only thing that came with it was just a tiny sliver, and I think it was in the last episode when they have the appeal, one of the appeals, and Michael O'Kelly, who was the defense oh. investigator, was on the stand. <laughs> Don't get Laura started on and, that guy. Yeah, yeah, I know we're going to get into that. <laughs> and he's reading some email that I think it was he wrote to Kaczynski, the first uh, lawyer for, for Brendan, and talking about how this is a family tree with one branch and sort of that whole, that's the first time we sort of hear how people outside the family within the community view the Averys, or at least some do. You know, at the very end, it's sort of the only thing that sort of comes up is you can see why would they do this other than the the lawsuit. Right. And those, you know, when we'll talk about the alleged cover up and those two cops that sort of show up over and over Deputies. again. Yeah, well, the difference. Yeah, but isn't yeah. a cop just like a generic name for a person? Who oh, n- not the if law? you work for the the, the police department. department. Okay. They are crazy that they, that they're getting trolled, and it's the sheriff's department. Okay, okay. Well, you know, so so we see about those two deputies yeah. over and over again, and whatever their motivation might be. But let's talk about Brandon Dassey. I mean, I really think the beginning of the series, really, episode one is the setup, and then there's episodes two, three, and four, which are sort of the podcast listeners, excuse my language for me, like the oh shit, oh shit, oh shit episodes of the series. And then I think everything after that, the story continues to play out and there's more that happens. But there are so many revelations about the interior of this investigation, especially with regard to Brandon Dassey in these episodes. Let's talk about that confession. Okay, let's just get it out there. Toby, when you were watching this confession, I'd love to know what you think, because I think that we were talking about Adnan Syed's case. The the Jay confession to you is a little bit more malleable as to how, you know, it could have happened. And I'd love to know, seeing this video of Brandon Dassey's confession, you know, how did you react to it when you were watching it? Did you think it was clear coercion or did you have a different opinion? Uh, No, it seemed to me to be pretty clearly coercion. And again, you're only watching, you know, we only get to watch a few minutes of, you know, what was like three and a half hours or something. But 
it was frustrating to me in that it seems like any responsible adult and an adult who was, you know, kind of tasked with dealing with the public a lot wouldn't be able to see him and his limitations for what they were and not try to exploit them, you know. And I, I sort of felt, you know, he's in there without a lawyer. He's in there without his mother. He clearly, he, he's not strong on thinking on his feet. My lasting sort of thing that really, among the many things that bothers me about this whole thing, the one that I think bothers me the most is that as it gets kicked up, the appeals, nobody in authority is, is able to see that and kind of call bullshit on it. Right. Laura, what, what did you think when you were watching that confession video? This just absolutely horrified me. I mean, this this it was it was painful, really painful to watch because it's so obvious that Brendan Dassey is intellectually somewhat slow. I, I've never, you know, I think at the end of the series was the most I heard him talk. Um, it was just painful to watch these people take advantage of him in the way that they did, and to get away with it. And like Toby said, for nobody besides the people that took on his appeal, to be as horrified by this treatment really left me with some questions as to the state of the criminal justice system out there. I felt the same way about the same questions that I had and the questions that I had about, you know, even the jury watching that tape, although the parts that were excluded that the jury didn't see that we sort of saw in the subtitles, they didn't see him telling his mother that he didn't understand what it was that had happened. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me over and over again with Brandon Dassey, but also with Stephen Avery to an extent, you know, sort of getting back to that sympathetic bent is that, you know, they talked about Stephen Avery also having an IQ of what, 70? 70. Yeah. And the ease with which he answers questions, no, or I don't know, it strikes me that neither one of these guys has the quick-wittedness to tell a clever lie, like, no, I don't know what direction the car was parked in because I'm not the one who parked it. Like, that's a kind of a sophisticated, thoughtful lie that I don't know if they have the the wit to tell. What, what were you going to say about, about that? Uh, well, guy? about the confession. You know, it, when I think of the narrative of the entire series, there's no voiceover, there's no narrator, and we're directed by, you know, these on-screen paragraphs to point out what's happening or what's important. But with this videotape of the confession, it was set up and set up perfectly by Stephen's lawyer, Bun- Strang. Strang, that's it. Or, yeah, he Strang. says, he basically says, this is what you're going to see. You're going to see him answering questions and he's answering everything he possibly can and he's just trying to do this and sets it, and, and that ends up being what you see. You see him just basically guessing, guessing, and the, and reminds the, the viewer that the, the piece of evidence that nobody knows is that they know that Teresa was shot in the head. And so when he f- gets fed that line, he just spits just it right back. I'm just going to say it, he says, right? Yeah. The pop said, I'm just going to say it. Yeah. yeah. Who shot him in the head? He did. Yeah, he keeps saying, what happened to the head? We cut her hair. What happened? It just, he didn't know. And it wasn't like he, he was just waiting for somebody to tell him and like now the jig's up. It was the fact that the lawyer set it up so that we would know exactly what we're seeing and watching that, I mean, really underlined it for, for us and enraged us. 
so, you know, Avery's IQ, they said, was 70, and Brendan Dassey was between 69 and 73. So in a lot of states, um, 70 is considered sort of like the cutoff level for somebody that has a disability that maybe is considered limited. Um, Wisconsin has a different method of how they determine if somebody's IQ is limiting them in these cases, and they have sort of a set of criteria. They don't have a specific number. So it seems like there's a lot of wiggle room and room for interpretation based on whoever's pushing this case forward. And it sort of made me wonder, you know, is this case something that is going to prompt people to maybe take a look at Wisconsin's law with regard to how they assess somebody's intellectual deficits when they're going in a court case? Well, before we talk about the ethics of Brandon's first legal team, which I definitely want to talk about, I remember thinking when I was watching (laughs) that part of the documentary, wow, when Laura sees this, she's going to lose it. Let's talk about just the stark difference between the lawyers that Stephen Avery has from the beginning of this murder case and what Brennan Dassey is left with. And let's talk about the fact that the difference there is funding, really. Stephen Avery begins this case with some money that he receives in a settlement from the state. So he has this very crack, very on it legal team. We saw something similar. And the thing that was so interesting, the reason I compare this to the staircase is that that was really looking at a super well-funded legal defense. And what happens if you have all the resources in the world? This was sort of a middle of the road, you know, well-funded legal defense, also with lawyers who believed their client lawyers who have sort of a civil rights background. But that's so frustrating that they couldn't do anything to help Brendan because it was bad for their case potentially to you know, assist a state's witness. And that complicated relationship that Avery's legal team had with the family in talking about Brandon's case. Toby, when you saw these differences between these legal teams, was the poverty, you know, the difference between a funded defense and an unfunded defense, did that stick out for you in terms of being something that, you know, we need to see from outside the justice system? Yeah, well, to me, that was almost the biggest thing about this whole documentary is is that Really, if you're poor and you can't afford high-priced representation, the odds are so against you that what the state can bring to the case and what your public defender can bring. And you see that a little bit with Stephen Avery's public defender at the very beginning. You know, we have this adversarial system, but in those cases, when you're poor and you can't afford like really strong representation, it's just, it's it's not a fair fight in the slightest. And with Brendan, he actually benefited from how high profile the Stephen Avery thing was. I mean, I think that's what got these other lawyers coming to him with either good intentions or bad. You mean in his appeal, right? Well, even at the beginning, Brendan Dassey, even at the beginning when um, Kaczynski, yeah comes, right? That's before the appeal. That's his, that's his original. Right. That's his original lawyer. who with the And the only reason why he's involved, it seems pretty clear, is because of the Stephen Avery thing. It's so high profile that he's like, oh, I'll jump on this Brendan Dassey part of it. Well, you know, I think the big difference between Avery with his money and Dassey without is Dassey could not fire his lawyer. Yeah. You know, if Stephen Avery did not like the, the the tack that his attorneys were taking, he could get rid of him and he pay tried. somebody else. There was a hearing Dassey, about that. But Dassey tried, and the judge said, I will not dismiss him. It wasn't until they pulled the the, the evidence and made the case that, that Kaczynski, you know, wasn't present for that Saturday morning interrogation that finally he was dismissed. 
Okay, let's talk about that. We know that, uh, Laura Bricker, you were defense investigation for the public defender in Manchester, New Hampshire, correct? Mm -hmm. So we are very fortunate here in New Hampshire. While public defenders across the country uh, are really flailing and flagging in terms of resources, um, actually a reporter at the station where I work, Emily Corwin, recently did an excellent story about how the public defender system in New Hampshire is actually thriving. It is a... I don't want to say well-resourced, but well-run, well-staffed department. The data show that people in New Hampshire do get a rigorous defense from public defenders here in the state. A good defense means a good conviction. Well, uh, not necessarily. Well, I mean, if you have great, if you have a solid defense, there are fewer things that a convict can can appeal on because they got a solid defense. Correct. And also there are a staff of investigators who do their due diligence, and you were one of those investigators. Yes. What did you think when you saw... What Kaczynski had his investigator do in basically getting a co- another confession from their client, Brendan Dassey. I, I can't even I almost can't even talk about this. It makes me so upset. But I, I just to say, you know, to reiterate what you were saying, Rebecca, and to piggyback on what Toby was saying, not all public defenders are created equal in t- different states around the country. And New Hampshire is very lucky. They're very well run. And we had an investigation director who closely oversaw everything that we did. And if you had an ethical question about how you were approaching a case, you would speak with this lawyer and you would make sure you were doing things correctly. I can't, this guy, I, I don't even know, I don't even have words for what he did to this poor, poor young man. Watching this young man whose eyes throughout the entire documentary have this vacant, almost dead expression because he's just so limited. And to see an investigator who's supposed to be helping him go in and essentially act as an agent of the state. And then the part that just like threw me through the, like made me, my, my husband made me turn it off. You can see now I still can't even talk about it. Um, it was when he when he called the prosecutor's office and sent this poor kid over to talk to them without an attorney. You know, as an investigator, I often went in and met with clients um, in the jail while they were preparing for trial. And I would say things to them like, you know, I am not going to judge you for what you did. You need to be honest with me so that I can give you the best investigation that I can give you for this case um, so that I wasn't going on wild goose chases and things like that. But this guy, and even at the end when he started crying on the witness stand, it made me feel like he had some sort of a personal connection to Teresa's family or something that was motivating him other than his duty to represent his client. He set up that table like a police interrogator would with, Ugh, with, with the ribbon, the, the ribbon and all this other stuff. And, you know, for, for a typical perp who comes in, you set up all that stuff there. You get him thinking about what he did. I mean, that's a tactic that the, that cops use to elicit a confession or cooperation because then you're supposed to feel empathy and sympathy for the things that you did in, in conducting this crime. And it just was like I'm so surprised that he, his constitutional right is to have a vigorous defense. And this is the guy who who it, it, it sounds like collusion between there the was defense. collusion between yeah. Yeah. between them and the prosecutor. There well, was with yeah. Teflon Len. But Laura, I got this question. I want to ask you if Kaczynski and Michael O'Kelly honestly felt like the best legal course for Brendan Dassey was to make a plea and, and and testify against Stephen Avery. Were they not doing everything by the book to get that? 
No. If that was what they thought the best defense should have been in this case, you know, they should have thoroughly investigated all other possible suspects, everything else they could have done in this case. I mean, I, from what I gathered, that investigator didn't even go out and talk to any of the witnesses or do any sort of background other than take Brendan Dassey in and, you know, beat this out of him. Um, so once they've exhausted all other options and they, they think, okay, none of these other theories of defense are going to really be strong for this case, at that point, then they could say, well, this might be your best option in this situation. But it was clear even from the initial television interviews with Len that he had already decided where this case was going. He hadn't even talked to Without even talking to the client. I can't even get over that. Toby, what were you going to say about this part of the documentary? My my sense, when they introduced Kaczynski... They're talking about how he had just lost an election for mm. some for judge. For ju- for Which, judge. by the way, Judgeship. he is now a judge. Well, I, I heard he wasn't, but yeah, on his Facebook page, which somehow is not set to private, he lists himself as a judge. Um, well, I, I think at the when Kaczynski's introduced, they, they talk about how he lost he lost this election, and my sense from it was that he was angling to get a, a must have been angling to get a job with the state somehow and that part of the way he was going to do this was by delivering Brendan Dassey's confession to help get Steve Avery in jail. I think he just wanted to be involved. I think he just lost this election and he just seemed so happy to be to have to have some attention. To be a player. Yeah. That was how I read him. Well I just I, I was just surprised that he without hesitation, without any self-examination afterwards just assume this guy was guilty and and even if you assume he's guilty in order to uh, again like Laura was saying if you if you're really mounting a proper defense you at least have to check out some other avenues but you know a lot of people i think you know may not have been fairly portrayed it's really hard for me to figure out how kachinsky like what other information we could have gotten that would have made him seem at all sort of sympathetic and ethical. He, he, he just really does not seem like a good guy. You know, I agree with you, and that's not the kind of thing I would normally go on a limb and say, but that Kaczynski and O'Kelly just seem to not have good motivations behind them. I think that came out in that appeal. We saw that in that hearing. Kaczynski lied on the stand, and then, they you know, that those appellate attorneys played the tape, you know, of, of the phone call. It was just like, I mean, he was just lying. He just wasn't truthful about what his motivations were. And it, it sort of brings, there are so many interesting characters in this story, especially in this legal community. And it really does sort of make you wonder, like, what is going on in this part of our country? But let's now just pivot for a second to Ken Kratz, our favorite prosecutor in the story. And his behavior around Brennan Dassey's arrest, he gave a news conference in which he laid out what Brendan Dassey had confessed to. This is the tape confession that we saw. He laid it out as if Brendan Dassey had just told him the story, knocked on the door, walked in, Teresa's shackled to the bed. I was made to rape her. I was made to stab her. I was made to slit her throat. Then we took her out and shot her. Ken Kratz lays this out at a press conference. This is the theory of the, their theory of the case. This is what they're going to prosecute. What about the ethics of laying out that story in a press conference. Have you ever seen, I, I, I know the rules of conduct are different in every state. Have you ever seen anything like that before, Kevin? Yes, I have. You got to remember what we're f- familiar with in New Hampshire. We're the outlier where we have, we're, the pendulum is all the way at the other end where 
Um, no prosecutors one's allowed can't. To talk about no, you anything. find out at arraignment time when they when when they say why should this person get bail or not. That's when the prosecution lays out the case. So, I mean, if you think of like in the New York State, and I'm sure they were going within the boundaries of what they were allowed to say because they're getting questions, especially if they, I'm sure they arrested Brendan within a day or two. I think that they arrest him and then there was the press conference. So, yeah, I mean, they got to put it all together. But yeah, they, this was a huge case. This, this was, the, the, the trial was live on local TV for the whole time. Right, but then that what he laid out in that press conference wasn't even the theory of the murder that they put out there well, at trial. Well, it started to fall apart. A lot of holes in that. What, what did you think of the... They um, even bring Brandon to testify. Right, well, they could not have done that, right? I mean, it's like they knew he would be a terrible witness, not to mention the fact that Stephen Avery had these excellent excellent lawyers. I would have loved to see a cross-examination of Brendan Dassey by Stephen Avery's lawyers. That would have been, for you me... Would tr- you would cheat on me with those lawyers. Oh, I my know God. Oh, that one? The little guy? Oh, Happy I'm anniversary, Kevin. Your in anniversary. Love with that guy. <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember. I was also in love with pass. the... Yeah, I was also in love with the lawyer in the staircase a little bit. Just these, these, these people who just have really committed themselves to their clients and just really, they believe in what they're doing. They believe in their client. It's just, it's very appealing. And it's very appealing to see people who are so good at what they do, you know, trying to do the right thing. Laura, what did you think of the, in particular, I think the prosecution, because we saw the defense interacting with the press too, but it was very different. What did you think of the prosecution's interaction with the, with the media? Well, I'm just not used to that level. And like you said, I don't know what the rules are in Wisconsin. I couldn't believe the level of detail that they were giving out. You know, here in New Hampshire, where we are, if there's a big case and there's a lot of salacious details like that, the affidavits are often sealed. Sometimes they're even sealed from the defense attorney who has to then go to court and petition to get it unsealed. Um, I was just really struck by the level of information overall that was being shared with the media, down to the press conferences that they had every single day during the trial. I've never seen attorneys comment on a judge's ruling directly in the middle of a trial. Uh, You know, most attorneys that, you know, I'm familiar with would say something like, you know, you can see what happened in the courtroom. The case is going to play out in the courtroom. No comment. Right. Um, This was like another universe. They seem to be allowed to talk about facts not already presented into evidence. Right. It was and it was and bizarre. It was bizarre, and there was a lot of, um, for lack of a better word, that what really struck me over and over again, especially around Ken Kratz, and he was a very soft-spoken guy, and there's been a lot of tweets about sort of his little voice, you haunting know, us. his haunting. But <laughs> there seemed to be a lot of, I don't know, sort of competitive glory chasing in the prosecution of this case in a way that, like, lack of gravitas is the way that I would sort of describe it. We see a lot. No, it strengthens it. Lack of humility among the in the system. So pompous. Yeah. Yeah, But there's also a sense that when you see a lot of prosecutors, even even prosecutors who you might feel are pursuing a theory of the case that you don't agree with, there is sort of a sense of like, this is my job. I'm pursuing the state's case On, on behalf of on behalf of this, you know, on behalf of the victim. There's sort of a sense of dignity around it that really seemed to be missing from this procedure. Toby, did did you feel that that sort of lack of lack of gravitas, lack of dignity with the way that these prosecutors conducted themselves? Well, I, you know, I, I was thinking self-aggrandizement, and, and I think this gets backed up later when they when you, at the in the last episode they show the letter that he sent after he gets kind of busted for those for those sexts, and he's saying, you know, I did this and I did that, and you're not going to. You know, discount what I did on this one. 
there seemed to be a fair amount of preening and uh, sort of high regard for himself. Uh, this is one of the guys who I, I wonder if he was given really a fair deal by the directors of the documentary. Uh, I, I can't believe that he's as as big of a jerk as he comes across. But you know the footage they show, I, he really – if your ideal is that they're trying to find the truth behind a crime, trying to find the right person who did it, that seems to be you know fairly low on us priority list based on what you see. It was low on their priority list. It was also one of the things that I found very interesting was the inability for the defense to present an alternative theory of the crime because of potential liability, a third party liability issue. So, for example, the defense was not allowed to intimate that somebody else might have done it. Uh, Laura, no, they could intimate, but they couldn't name somebody. Right. Um, so we wrote about a case, the Ken Carpenter case in our book Notes on a Killing, in which <laughs> the defense won a motion that the word murder was not allowed to be used in the trial because it was prejudicial and because there was no body. Because, because again, the body was burned. Right. It was this, It was a similar sort of thing, except that it was the defense sort of who was able to win that. And, you know, the, the argument was you can't use the word murder because the, the body is burned beyond recognition. And we're going to argue that the body's never been found. And we're going to argue that this murder wasn't really committed. And so to use the word murder is prejudicial, which is absurd in a murder case. I mean, this, it was literally. He was on trial for murder, and they weren't allowed to use the word murder. And this reminded me of that in a way. And you see the defense team just sort of roll with it. But this was another thing, which was like, what is going on? And it was almost like the reporters in those press conferences were were just like they were sort of surrogates for the audience because they were asking the questions. Did you feel like, Laura, they were asking the questions you would have asked if you'd been there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I loved the Greek chorus. I loved that gallery of reporters. I I really want to I really want to catch up with them and sort of see what their thoughts are. I love the cutaway shot where they're all playing poker. (laughs) (laughs) Killing time. Did you ever cover long trials when you were a television reporter, Kevin? Uh, Yeah. How did you guys kill the time? Uh, I don't. Rec- you didn't go far. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you, yeah, because you just didn't know when something was gonna come back. All right. Well, let's talk about. I think that we've covered. We all, I think, are on the same page with Brandon Dassey. Coerced confession, probably railroaded by the system. Let's switch over to Stephen Avery and let's talk about that case in particular. He was wrongly convicted of the rape. We all agree right. that he was correct. I agree. Do you agree, Laura, that he was yeah. wrongly convicted? Oh, yeah, of the rape? yeah, absolutely. Toby, do you agree that he was wrongly convicted of the rape and exonerated? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, okay. I'm only asking <laughs> because no, I'm only asking because in the trial, there were some witnesses who claimed that they didn't believe that he had been exonerated or that he was actually wrongly convicted of the rape. That, well, they said it does just because the DNA evidence and he exactly. doesn't mean he didn't do it. Another interesting character was that DNA uh, scientist lady, the one who reminded me a the little hair? bit of Paula Dean. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, that's a side note there. Um, so let, but let's talk about the case itself. Um, Toby, you sort of hinted at this, and I think this has been the subject of a lot of discussion. This documentary clearly framed the wrongful conviction of an innocent guy again is sort of like the theme of the documentary. It was built that way. And I know you had some concerns about that, Toby. Do you want to put those concerns out there? Sure. Uh, first of all, I'm pretty sympathetic to that that point of view. Like it, it seemed like they made a strong case for it. But again, you know, and it's similar to the way I felt about Serial to an extent, which is you're getting one side of the story. You're you're getting the brief for the defense. And there's nothing that's shown from the prosecution that seems especially compelling 
besides just the basic facts of the case that, that the defense is then refuting. So I think that was that was the major flaw. You know, the the filmmakers like threw in with this theory and it may be true, but if you're on a jury, I think it's a tough one when the best that the defense, like from your viewpoint on the jury, that the best the defense could come up with is the cops set him up. You know, I think that's a, that's a tough one to take seriously. That that to me seems like sort of the hail mary when you can't come up with anything else. So it seemed to me that the case, that aspect of the case, they touched on it a couple times, but that barrier, I think, was was a pretty tough one for them to overcome. And I, I just kind of felt like I didn't have a sense of why jurors sitting there would have voted for him to be uh, guilty, even though it, originally it wasn't that way. How, how were they able to come to that? And from watching the documentary, it just seems completely inexplicable. There must have been reasons. So you think that the filmmakers had tunnel vision sort of in the same way that, you know, the investigators would have tunnel vision deciding that somebody was guilty and only framing it that way. You're sort of saying the filmmakers had the same sort of approach. Yeah, I guess so. Although, you know, I don't I don't feel they have the same burden of responsibility that, you know, people within the legal system do. And I think it made for a compelling product. But if you're if you're saying what what conclusions can we draw about Stephen Avery's guilt or innocence? We've now listened to the argument for his innocence but we really haven't heard the argument for his guilt, as far as I'm concerned. Well, Kevin has done a little bit of research into things presented at the trial that were not um, shown in the documentary. Kevin, do you want to run some of that stuff down for us? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, and I think, again, we have to say, if we haven't been clear about it up front, we're not experts on the law in Wisconsin. And we also have not read the trial transcripts. Not read the trial transcripts, and uh, while we have, some of us have done some sort of extracurricular research, we we are going by a lot about you know what was in the documentary and that that was you know uh, ex cathedra. So here here's some things that I find and I just want to see if this changes your perspective of all uh, of Avery as a character or as possible innocence. Now Stephen Avery called Auto Trader several times that month to come out for um to, to for photographing and he always requested Teresa Hallback one time he greeted her he was only wearing a towel and approached her this little bit of evidence was excluded from the trial because they felt it was inflammatory Avery did own chains and leg irons that he said he used in the bedroom so that like crazy detail there was you know some truth to that the bullet with the DNA that was found in the garage it was matched ballistically to a gun that Avery kept in his bedroom. Uh, and Brendan, two things uh, in those recorded phone calls, he told his mother on the phone that Stephen Avery had been touching and pumping him and his siblings. Lastly, this was presented at trial, and it's the most troubling one for me. Brendan told the investigators that Avery moved the RAV4, and then he popped the hood to remove the battery cable. Now, Avery's non-blood DNA, his sweat DNA, was recovered from the hood uh, release latch in the inside of the hood. So the blood could have been planted inside the car, but then how do you explain his DNA being under the hood of the car? All right, I'm going to go to you, Laura, in a second. I just want to make one comment about the leg shackles. I I think that's a red herring. I don't think it matters because we know... 
we saw Brandon Dassey's confession, and we know that he was made to draw that picture the way he drew it, depicting leg shackles. They probably had the leg shackles in evidence or knew that he owned them, and they made that. They could have made that part of their the story. The investigators could have said, so what's up with the leg shackles and the chains? Right. Just like they did with the, uh, who shot him. It could have totally been planted. Like well, that. yes, but if if that if that's something that they knew about Avery, that could have been become part of the story. There's no evidence she was ever in his house or his bedroom or on his bed. There's no DNA exactly. other than that bullet. There's no blood. And I can't There's believe, no- Lori, you're going to back me up on this. If you shoot somebody at close range inside a, a close space like a garage that's filled with boxes and all sorts of uneven uh, uh, items. Uh, there's no way you're not going to be able to clean up their theory all of the, of the mist. Cases. Their theory of the yeah. case, whether or not Avery is, their theory of the case is not yeah. right. Yeah, he, I mean that's that's my. She was not I, shot I, in I that garage. I feel strongly about that. Yeah. I feel strongly enough about it to say, that, yeah, I don't speculate. I don't think it's speculation to say the theory of the case is not is not possible. You know, whether or not yeah. he's guilty or, However, guilty or innocent. However, Teresa's blood was found in the back of the Rav Four. Which that means that could be the crime scene. It could be. What were you going to say, Laura? Oh, I was going to agree with Kevin. Um, you know, it's, yeah. Let her speak. Let me. No, I, I just the the whole crime scene thing. I mean, Luminol would have lit up like the Fourth of July if this happened, like the way they're saying it happened, and it just seems completely. It just makes no sense that there was no physical evidence in that trailer, um, and if she was really killed in the garage, I really, I, I don't think Stephen Avery was sophisticated enough to clean up a crime scene to that level. Either that or their crime scene technicians in Wisconsin are completely inept. Um, one other thing, Kevin, I also was looking at some of the things that were left out, and this one was um, the judge ruled that it was not allowed to come in because it was too prejudicial, um, that while Stephen was in prison the first time, he created a diagram of a torture chamber mm-hmm, yeah. and told other inmates, I intend to torture and rape and murder young women after my release. So those things definitely change your perspective about the case. And I think regardless of if Stephen Avery is guilty or innocent, I think that the system failed in terms of giving him a fair trial. But I'm not so sure that he's innocent. Well, I I was struck by how both Bobby Dassey, Brendan's brother, and then Scott Tadich, uh, his stepfather, they, I mean, they both were, seemed pretty convinced that Steve Avery was guilty. And, um, At different times. Like, his family would go back and forth quite a bit. It was sort of like, you know... And that gets to my question about what is the real final well, dynamic I, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, Bobby Dassey testified against him. And then Scott Tadich, after he was convicted, was like, yeah, that's what he deserves, you know. And his testimony... Uh, and when they take the break, the reporter says, what the hell happened out there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't... I, I mean, This is the first time I've heard that stuff that Kevin was just talking about. And I don't... You know, I don't think it's so clear that he's innocent of that one. I mean, he may be. I, I, I guess I don't have a a real strong sense one way or the other. And it, it's interesting how the people who were championing him, like, abandoned him so totally. You know, I think these are thoughtful people and people who who spend, you know, their lives on these kinds of issues. And the fact that they just really didn't want anything to do with him after that. Who, who are uh, you referring to? Because his lawyers have not given, I mean, his lawyers still believe in his innocence. Well, there was that legislator who uh, was championing his cause. There was the Wisconsin Innocence Project. I think there were a couple other people who, who as soon as that happened, you know, they, they took him off their website um, and, and, and things like that. So anyway, I mean, I, I, I guess those things kind of struck me and I, I just kind of felt like it was hard 
to just based on what you saw in the in the documentary to draw a strong conclusion about his guilt or innocence. Well, you know who has I don't think you had the full picture of the trial. You know who has a strong opinion is everybody in Wisconsin because they are flipping shit about this documentary on both sides. We right. actually we actually have a, a voice memo that refers to that. Let, let's actually hear from somebody who lives in Wisconsin who gave us a call, emailed us a voice memo telling us where to look for some of that reaction. Hi, Crime Writers On. My name is Katie. I love your podcast. I've been with you since the beginning. I'm actually calling as someone who is from Wisconsin, and I grew up not too far away from where the crimes and making a murderer took place. Actually, um, the guy that took over as a defense attorney was from Nina, which is the sister city of Menasha to where I'm from. Anyway, I just want to let you guys know that if you can, you should look into the Post Crescent, which is the local newspaper in the Fox Cities where I'm from. There has been just post after post after post, article after article about that documentary. People from Wisconsin are completely outraged. <laughs> I'm sure you guys have received so many emails along the same lines, but suddenly everyone's a lawyer. <laughs> and I've watched the whole thing and I love it. Honestly, I thought it was very provocative and interesting. And I have my own opinions, but I just want to hear yours. But yeah, I just thought I'd give you guys a little tip. If you want to look into the Post Crescent, you can see exactly how Wisconsinites feel about this because Wisco is blown up right now with opinions. Now, so Kevin, you actually looked at the website that she suggested that uh, we take a look at. And what did you see there? Yeah, and, and even better yet, uh, the, the newspaper's Facebook page, you know, where everybody, you don't have to have a subscription to the newspaper to comment there. It is crazy, you know, that the they are Re, I mean, very, very passionate. And, uh, you know, the, it's like, you're living in a fantasy world. Do you believe in unicorns? And why don't you, you know, open your eyes? Did you even watch the documentary? And I just kind of wanted to go in there and say, hey, anybody want to talk about Obamacare? You know, just because <laughs> it was just, it's it really is so nuts. I mean, people feel extremely, very strongly on, on both sides. And it's very divisive there. It is. One thing that I want to talk about, I just want to talk about these two law enforcement officials, Lank and Colburn, and this idea that whatever their motivations were, that they may have planted evidence to secure a conviction against Stephen Avery. Can we all just agree, just for the sake of this discussion, that whether or not Stephen Avery is innocent or guilty doesn't necessarily exclude the idea that evidence was planted to secure his conviction. Do we all agree that that's possible? That uh, For the sake of yeah, argument, I could yeah. say, yeah, okay, sure. Okay, so I'm, I'm not saying that they did plant the evidence. I'm saying that it could have happened even if he was guilty. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's my premise here. There was a huge turning point in this documentary. It's the end of episode four. I actually got a voice memo from somebody else who just finished that episode and sent us their reaction. I just want to play it for you guys, and then we'll talk about it. This is Travis from Hillsborough, New Hampshire. My wife, Dale, and I have been watching uh, Making a Murderer, and we're up to episode four. Um, because I don't care about spoilers, I looked up the entire case on Wikipedia and skimmed through it just to get an idea of what I was getting into. But after episode four, what the fucking fuck is going on in this town? I mean, you, you find this evidence that's clearly been tampered with. There's a needle hole in the blood vial. It's clearly been accessed. The only thing I can think about is that the evidence of the evidence being tampered with gets thrown out, but I don't see how that's even possible. It's just incredible to me that this could be so screwed up and 
this happens to this guy. It's just unbelievable. Just unbelievable, says Travis. Toby, when you got to the end of episode four and we had sort of heard, I don't know, I mean, it had been more than intimated that evidence had been planted in this case. And you saw that, you know, that lawyer going to the evidence room, having videotaped that the evidence box had been tampered with, opening the evidence box, pulling out the vial of blood, the needle hole on the vial of blood. Do you think that evidence is planted in this case? Do you think that these cops or someone else planted evidence to secure this conviction? I don't know. I mean, I, it, it certainly they make the case for it. Again, I think uh, one of the problems with the documentary is it would have been helpful to, to hear what did the prosecution have to say about it. I mean, we, it's basically it's kind of presented there, but you don't know if Kratz had some explanation or how he impeached that information. So, I, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a crazy uh, – when I was watching that, I'd be like, this this would be a really, like, crappy book of fiction because it's just <laughs> so far out there. But the fact that it, I – yeah, it was kind of a jaw dropper. Was your mind blown when you saw that tape? Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, it's one of those – it was blown for a number of reasons, one of which is it seems like there's these different documentaries that just kind of, like, luck into – these crazy stories, you know, and I mean, there's no way the documentarians could have known from the beginning, right, that they were going to run into this or did they jump on this later? But it just it's I mean, it's crazy. Like if again, if it was fiction, you'd be like they couldn't come up with anything more obvious than that. And, and there it is. It happened. But I, I don't know if there's an alternative explanation, if at some point they had to like retest the blood and that was the way they got it out. And that was just sort of the way you And there get was no it. documentation or note on the evidence kit that it had been opened on a certain date. Isn't that required, Laura? Isn't they, that what they would have to do? They said that, yeah. that isn't the way they, they draw blood. Is it, If they wanted to take a sample, it would be to pierce the, the, the vial top and do that. Yeah. It's not. That's not the way they, they it. Well, that's what they said in the documentary. The, the whole time, you know, it seemed as The evidence though, tape should never have been opened. You, you know, that was, that was, for me, that was a oh shit moment. Yeah, I didn't, uh, the other thing that occurred to me was that it seemed like if this really was a setup by the police, that they were doing it with the assumption that he was going to have a public defender again, and that he wasn't going to have the wherewithal to really go after all these little details that kind of pointed to them. If he had just had a public defender who had a bunch of other cases going on, that they just cert- simply wouldn't have had time to go through all these things. And that's when, like, Lank sort of skulking around the, the crime scene. He was everywhere, you know. that guy, Lank. He was yeah. everywhere. But he must have thought he'd get like away Elvis. with it. How would, they, how would they find out about it if, if they didn't have this huge, you know, he had the money to pay for these people to do all this research? First of all, you know, the prosecution presented no other real explanation that seemed credible as to why there was a hole in this file. And, um, you know, when you access evidence as a defense investigator or as the prosecution investigator, there's a log, um, there's a whole protocol that needs to be followed, which clearly wasn't followed in this case. Um, But what I was going to say, one of the things that struck me, and I don't know if this is something that was just left out of the documentary, the lack of experts that were used in this trial. So I'm like, okay, you know, Brendan Dassey's coerced confession, where's the expert talking about false confessions. But in this instance, where's Henry Lee or some other blood splatter expert? I mean, this blood in the RAV4 
It makes no sense. You mean that tiny little smear? The tiny little smear. So where is the expert who can clearly look at this and say, oh, yes, this is this type of blood droplet? I know you guys, Kevin wrote about a case where they actually took an entire wall out of a house to go spray it up with luminol. And they, I think they did bring in Henry Lee um, to with talk Sheila about- Sheila the Bar case? Sheila the Peeler. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, the lack of experts, and even if you have a public defender, I don't know how it is in Wisconsin, but here in New Hampshire, if you have a big case like this and you need an expert, you write a motion and petition the court for funds for that expert. And that was not done here. It didn't It didn't seem to and have been done. It wasn't presented. He had a private defense, so he wouldn't have been able to, yeah. to get that. Well, he could have paid for it. Yeah, I, I think you he know? could have paid for I, it. I just, um, and, well, and we I, don't know. Again, it, we, it's in the, it wasn't in the documentary. You know, but I, so I think relying on this defense that it was just the police planting evidence for the type of people that live in that area, that was a really tough pill to swallow. Um, they needed to present some other sort of theory within that to make this a little more palatable and a little more believable. Some of the other theories I just had to mention, I was on Reddit, not the Facebook page for the um, newspaper, and Bathrobe Jesus had a big theory on there <laughs> um, that it was really all about the junkyard and the people wanted the junkyard land. But, you know, just some sort of theory. I think you have to think like the jurors. And, you know, that was a lot of what I did as a defense investigator. When the attorneys get into the legal aspect of the case, I would be the person who would think like a juror. Now, how is this going to come across? Am I going to believe this? And I think for this particular population, believing that the police that probably are mostly related to half these people, I mean, this is a very small community. Everybody knows everybody. That's something that's going to be hard for them to take in. No, I I don't disagree with you. The one thing that I think they didn't make enough hay of, and I, I don't know if you guys caught this too, was that one, the one guy who was with the team looking in through the house who said, you know, Oh, after several days, the key the key was found here, and he said it wasn't there before. Did you guys catch that? When yeah, that, yeah. W- why wasn't that a bigger? I think mean, they tried to make a lot of hay out of that, and I think that they also tried to make a lot of hay out of the DNA evidence on that, which is that oh, we found Stephen Avery's DNA on the key, which he presumably handled for couple hours at most, but they couldn't find any, any DNA of from Teresa, Teresa yeah. who this is right. her key, it, it, even in the crevices. It, it just That was really weird. Just to get back to the vial for one second, you can believe, I think, that Stephen Avery committed this crime and that that vial, the blood from that vial was used to contaminate that bullet because they had the bullet in police custody. They could have definitely fired it, retrieved it, smeared blood on it, and planted it because there's no other explanation for how that bloody bullet gets there and doesn't contaminate the entire garage. Right, and they had the gun, correct? They had the gun in custody, yeah. Right. So, Kevin, one listener did ask us a question that I know you might know the answer to because of uh, two of the cases that you've written about, why there weren't more remains um, in the fire pit. Yeah, Yeah, that's interesting that the forensic anthropologist, uh, uh, she was able to find bones from every part of the body, um, you know, head, leg, you know, but not a complete thing. When I was looking, again, it was just a flash. When I was looking at the the bone fragments, I noticed they were all the same color, which leads me to believe, expert that I am, <laughs> because I just, I wrote well, two books like this. Well, you have reported two cases I, with well, burned remains. Yeah, so. it means that the, the, the body was burned at the same temperature all at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that there was no stirring around of the uh, 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 of the bones because then they would be, 
uh, flipped and turned and burnt more on one side or the other. At, at least the bits that I saw. Like, I yeah. obviously haven't examined all of that evidence, but when I saw that, I was struck how very evenly tan brown that was the, those fragments were, which said, okay, it was born, it was, it was, they were burnt at a particular temperature and certainly not high, uh, hot enough to incinerate them. One of the things but that... But there are a lot of remains missing. Yeah, and there were two sites. So they, the, the theory is that she was burned elsewhere and that her remains were then brought to that pit. But even with that, they still haven't, don't have enough pieces for right. an entire body. Right. So there's probably another... Possibly another site. Site or bones were taken and then disposed of. One of the other things that sort of struck me as a detail in the um, investigators, I think that sort of leans toward that they had the tunnel vision that maybe evidence was planted, was when they the investigator remembers being on the property and you know seeing what was clearly human bones in that pit, and then you see them and it's like these teeny little discs of brown something and it's like that's not clearly human bones by anybody's you know I mean I would never they could look- be bones. Or a rabbit. They didn't even look like bones. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't even look like bones. They look like rocks. Okay, so let's. Um, I really want to talk about um, how many Kevin Flynn books are you going to reference in this I, podcast? Hey, you, know, Laura? I, I, you know, it's the New Year, Kevin. It is That's the New right. Year. That's right. Okay, I would like to talk. Daddy about... Daddy got to pay for the braces. Okay, I would like to talk about other potential suspects. I don't think it's obviously responsible for us to start, you know, pinning Teresa Halbeck's murder on other people. The internet's doing it. The internet is Anonymous doing it. Anonymous is doing Anonymous it. Anonymous is definitely going after uh, Colburn and Lank for planting of evidence and, you know, looking at other people. And I don't think that that's responsible. Um, And I don't think it's responsible to crowdforce an investigation. It is creepy. Let's talk about it, though, in terms of the documentary. Um, There have been accusations that the documentary was not fair to other people sort of around the case. And that while we didn't see any alternative suspects pointed to at trial, that the documentary may or may not have intimated that other people were involved in this crime. Toby, did you pick up on any of that? And did you think that there were people that were portrayed unfairly in Making a Murderer? To me, at least, the the boyfriend who sort of helped organize the search for her, he was kind of left. And I wish I could remember the exact details. But I remember when he went from seeming like he was, you know, just really concerned and actively searching to seeming like there was a little something else going on there. And I kind of thought maybe they'd pick it up again, but they didn't. I I was left with a kind of strange impression of him that didn't seem to me to be particularly warranted. And then the other person who I, you know, I thought really came off worse than he probably deserved to was the brother who's constantly- Teresa's brother, right? Right, exactly. And, you know, because he seems, he seems like you, you're watching like this this agony that, that the Avery family's going through and you're feeling sympathetic. And then this this guy comes out and it's basically absolutely certain in his in his beliefs that that the two of them are guilty and that they're lying and all this stuff. He just seemed to come across as so un- unsympathetic, despite the fact that, you know, he's like one of the people who undoubtedly has lost somebody and not that he was like pointed to as a suspect in any way, certainly. But those are two people who, like if I had been friends of theirs and watched it, I think I would have been pretty upset with the way that they were allowed to be portrayed. Yeah, the the boyfriend was interesting and also the roommate, the male roommate. They were both sort of thrown out there and then those storylines just sort of weren't picked up, which I think, I agree with you, leaves more questions than it does. I mean, the filmmakers don't go out of their way to say they weren't a suspect because dot, dot, dot. I think the narrative of the documentary suffers because there isn't an alternative suspect presented because then it leaves you with the idea of saying, okay, if if the 
police are responsible for planting this evidence, then you either have to believe that the police killed her in a very sophisticated, specifically timed uh, event, or then she was killed by somebody close to her and they took advantage of what they thought was, um, you know, a situation where they could use Avery. As a the, scapegoat. Yeah, right? the victimology is kind of weird when you study that. It's like, well, why Teresa? You know, why is she a murder victim? You know, what situations was she in that, you know, were taken advantage of by her, her assailant? Right. And to be clear, victimology is not saying the victim's, oh, it's victim's not, right. fault. It, it's, it's looking at why that victim was the victim. And it very often has to do with the timeline of how they spend their days, the people they come in contact with. It has to do with, you know, do they fit yeah, the It's pro- not victim blaming. No, We've talked no. about if you're new it's, to the it's, podcast. It's a victim yeah. profiling, which is a very common law enforcement technique, which sort of helps lead to, for example, why they always look at people who are close to a victim. Because the in the documentary, I think you're left with the impression that Teresa is a stranger who's come out this one time to take photographs of this van. However, what we know in real life is she had been out there several times before, and and Avery was obviously uh, fixated on her to some extent. You know what? I don't want to say she was that he was obviously fixated. Auto Trader has photographers. How well, many of them? specifically asking for her. Maybe she does a he good said, job. Maybe she does a good job. I mean, I just, I, I think that it's very easy. But, that, but we to, don't to get, but as, as viewers, we don't get any of that. Right. No. It just looks like she just happened to walk into the junkyard, and all of a sudden, he's going to kill her. Right. Yeah, I, I really feel like the character of Teresa could have been explored a little bit more leading up to this. I mean, we had so much about Stephen Avery, so much about Brandon Dassey. So much about poor Stephen Avery's little mother. Um, I, I really feel like I would have had a better sense of what. Teresa walked into, had I known a little bit more about her, about her life at that time, um, aside from just that, you know, she liked to take pictures and things like that, you know, they did drop the ball on the boyfriend. I mean, I found it really odd that he just figured out her password. And I, I think that was like this big thing they dropped there. And then that was the end of it. Just Wasn't seems, he an ex-boyfriend as well? Yeah, he was, he was an ex-boyfriend, actually, but he talked to her every day or something. I mean, they, they made it sound like they were going somewhere with this. And then it just sort of fizzled out. And then the roommate who didn't notice she was missing for a few days or something. Right. Um, I think we, we, if we had more affection and 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 uh, care for Teresa, I think it would have created much more conflict so that you are more torn right. about our, our, our two protagonists here, Avery and Dassey. But it's likely the family didn't want to participate, just yeah. as we've experienced over and over again with our books. Families of the victims do not generally want to participate in a project that tells the story of the murder and the investigation, they don't. They, they well, just, they especially don't. If, if you get the sense that this is about how the, the, this guy didn't kill right. your, your loved one. Right. And right. they did have that video. Uh, if nothing else, they had that video that they showed at the end in court where she's talking about how she loves everything and she doesn't hate very much and you know she loves her mom and her sisters and stuff. I mean, that that was an easy thing they could have made could have shown more often in order to elicit some sympathy for her. But in fact, I mean, she just, who she is is almost incidental to the, to the whole story. It's, it's that there was somebody who was murdered and the fact that it was her in particular, it doesn't seem, doesn't seem to be that critical to the story as it's told. Well, one of the criticisms of the first season of Serial is that, you know, Sarah Koenig set up the story initially of it's, it's sort of framed like it's either Adnan or Jay. So you have this sort of sense that there is, 
you it's have definitely Adnan or somebody else. Well, I don't necessarily know. We talked about this a bit last week that she does say <laughs> maybe it's neither one of them at all. I mean, she does. She could. They go into that a little mm-hmm. bit with the serial killer theory and you know d- different theories, but. For a story like this to work, is it more compelling for an audience, you think, if there are other people to look at and wonder about? And do we sort of create that in our own minds and elevate those alternative suspects for our own viewer satisfaction? Well, they did that with the police primarily as these are the antagonists, the police, and they've got a motive, and they've done this before, and he's been railroaded, and we feel sympathy for him coming out of episode one, and we, and then when you get to the vile, I mean, Jesus Christ, I mean, you're like, you are, I think it, when I saw that, you want this story to turn out to be, yes, he's innocent, and he wins again, um, but it's more complicated than Is that. it com- more complicated because he might be guilty and yeah. just was railroaded, and does he deserve to be out if that was the case? I mean, I think, I think that the Constitution says he does, but not everybody feels that way. Some people feel like at the end is worth, you know, justifies the means if, in fact, he's guilty, which we don't, we, I don't think we We're know. We're not going to Wisconsin anytime soon, No, babe. I have no reason to. <laughs> um, so I was going to say what you were saying, you know, think about it, like these alternate um, suspects, you know, think about a traditional mystery that you're reading and you usually have the beginning and there's one suspect and you're convinced it's that person and then something, you know, comes out that's not that person. Then you have another suspect. So it keeps you guessing. And I think that might have helped move the narrative along here. Right. What do you think, Toby? Final thoughts about whether or not it would have been more compelling with other suspects or were the police enough of, and the prosecutors enough of bad guys to uh, to keep you riveted? Well, I, I just think it would be kind of ironic for a documentary that was about how somebody was wrongly suspected and kind of dragged through the mud and eventually convicted to then go and just sort of speculate about other people being involved. So, you know, uh, maybe it would have been better for the story, but I, I just don't see how you do that with, like, I, I think it would have been completely inappropriate to take the boyfriend and, like, sort of really cast light on him. Like, is he a suspect? What, what? Why was he doing this? Why was he doing that? That seems to me to be sort of against the spirit in which this documentary supposedly is, which is you should not speculate and then find ways to, to make that more of a reality than maybe it actually is. So, I would have been disappointed if they'd done that, even though it may have been more compelling. Toby, we've now talked about several projects that sort of give us that look into the the other side of the justice system, that sort of outside look in and the things that the many, many things that can go wrong. And in this case, I think we can all agree there were many, many things that went really, really wrong. Do you think this is good for America to see this and to have this become such a popular sort of blockbuster pop culture moment? Is this is this good for us in a way? Yeah, I, I think definitely. And I, and I think it's even when you take a look at what's going on in that trial and, and they talk about why would anybody make a false confession? Nobody makes – if you're innocent, you don't, you don't confess to a crime you didn't do. Again and again and again, that's happened in high enough profile things. And you just think about the, the things that don't make it to the public knowledge. So I, I think that's just one example of many things that it's good for people to be aware of. What do you think, Laura? Yeah. I mean, I always say, you know, going uh, on the side with the defense and seeing the other side of the story that people don't really see makes this a lot more gray um, than when you traditionally think of it as black and white and right and wrong. Uh, And and you should check out the Innocence Project has a really interesting uh, section on their website about false confessions. And they cite that one out of four people wrongfully convicted and later exonerated have made a false confession. And they have a whole list of why that happens. Um, So I think this is good because it is shedding light on 
the entire justice system and that maybe things aren't quite always as fair as we would hope and expect them to be. Before we wrap up, I would like us to do what we do with episodes of Serial, and I'd like you to give the 10 episodes of Making a Murderer a letter grade. You can base it on sort of how riveted you were. You can base it on the case, base it on anything you'd like, your sort of viewing experience. Kevin, I'm going to start with you. Although I think it is flawed based on the relation between the final narrative and the reality, I'm still going to give it an A. It's very riveting. What do you think, Toby? Uh, yeah, I'm kind of in the B plus, A minus. You know, I, I thought it was extremely interesting. I thought it brought up a lot of good things. Uh, again, like Kevin said, it, it was flawed, but yeah, still better than 99% of the stuff that's out there, I think. What do you think, Laura? What grade do you give Making a Murderer? I go B plus, A minus as well. Okay, I'm going to go with you, Kevin. I know I'm a high grader, but I also say A. We loved watching the show. We loved watching it together, and I think it's it's an interesting moment for true crime and for true crime TV and for documentaries. So, Well, the pendulum, I think, has swung the other way, where people, between Serial and, and the Jinx and the Staircase and this, people now want to see stories about good people who are going to jail versus catching bad guys and putting them in jail. Right. It's a little more satisfying what we see, I think, on, like, Discovery ID and so forth mm-hmm. in some ways. Yeah. Okay, so... This is a bonus episode, so we have a bonus edition of my favorite segment, The Crime of the Week. America's formerly favorite dad, Bill Cosby, was charged and arraigned, dare I say finally, in Philadelphia for an alleged 2004 sexual assault. The victim says that Cosby drugged and raped her in his Pennsylvania home, and while he's only charged, the details are similar to many allegations made against Cosby by dozens of women going back to 1965. So here is my question for you, and Toby, I'm going to start with you. Can we separate the art in this case from the artist? Do Cosby's alleged crimes forever taint his comedy, his projects, and most important, the way that you remember and perceive The Cosby Show? What do you think, Toby? Just real briefly, I think Cosby is a is a pretty extreme case in that so much of his persona, both publicly and in his roles, was as this sort of very sort of moral common sense guy and to know that it was just a complete lie. Yeah, I, I think it does. Whereas some artists, I think, can get away with that. I think for him, it, it it will hurt his legacy. What about you, Laura? Yeah, I think it's all over. And I have to say, I want to thank one of our Twitter followers who uh, thinks I sound exactly like Bill Cosby's attorney. Uh, it's a little <laughs> bit freaky. Um, it was a little bit like listening to myself, but I think it's all over for Bill Cosby. What do you think, Kevin? It is hard to separate the art from the artist. I'm trying to think back to some other, you know, Michael Jackson's music seems to live on without any asterisk next to it. O.J. Simpson's role in the Naked Gun stuff is just Robert Blake. That's It's not Woody the same. Woody Allen. Woody Allen, I think uh, his art has gotten a pass. Even Roman Polanski, his art. Charlie Chaplin, his art lives on without having the taint of of being flawed or a criminal. Will the Cosby Show, time will tell. Time will tell. I mean, it is arguably one of the the greatest sitcoms, top five sitcoms ever produced for television. But it is hard to right now to look past that. I'm just going to say this. I'll never use the expression Cosby sweater the same way. That's for sure. It will no longer be oh, a term of endearment. A Cosby sweater. <laughs> that's Ooh. right. That's right. Uh, so hey, Toby, hey, hey. Let's wrap it up on that note. Toby, how can I people find you on Twitter? Uh, at TobyBallNH. Toby, thank you so much, as always, for joining us with your always interesting take on everything. 
Okay, thanks. It was fun. And how about you, Laura? You are on the Twitter, correct? I'm on the Twitter, yes, at Laura Bricker, L-A-R-A-B-R-I-C-K-E-R. Thank you so much for coming all the way over here to join us today as well. It's a very exciting outing. And Kevin, how can listeners find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. Thank you so much for coming in with me today on New Year's Day to record this very special bonus episode. Well, I am your designated driver. (laughs) And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. Our show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and we're also on Facebook. Just search there for Crime Writers On Serial. You can also send an email with your questions and comments or even a voice memo like the ones you heard on the show today. Just send that along to us at crimewriterson at gmail.com. Our theme music was performed by Rocksteady Freddy and the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And you can find out more about all the crime writers at our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, do some shopping with our Amazon link, make a donation, buy our books on the Buy Our Books page. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you next week. I have a special anniversary card for you. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm so glad I'm here oh to see this. Oh, my God. <laughs> Read it. Oh, you right. tell Toby, Toby, because you're on Skype, um, Kevin gave me a card with a picture of Brandon Dassey on it. Oh, no. And when you open it, oh. <laughs> Question. What do you say in the card, Brandon? Answer. Happy birthday. Question. No, try again. Answer. Merry Christmas. Question. No. Answer. Happy New Year. Question. No. Answer. Happy Kwanzaa. Question. Nope. Answer. Happy Mother's Day. Question. What do you write in a card? Answer. With deepest sympathies. Question. Come on, try harder. Answer. Feliz Navidad. Question. What do you say to people who have been married for a long time, Brandon? Answer. Congratulations. Question. No. Answer. Bon voyage. Question. I'm just going to say it. What do you say to people on their wedding anniversary? Answer. Happy anniversary. Good job, Brandon. Now let's book him. Oh, sweetheart, this is so romantic and thoughtful. That's lovely. I hope you frame it. You mean like him? Yeah. Frame it just like him. <laughs> Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.